Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Lust in Spring, a paranormal erotic anthology written by Byron Kane, J.G. Carabella, Emma J., and Ina Morata. Ride along on naughty dates with the supernatural. What do a wealthy divorcee, a gay college student, five men trapped in a cottage, and a college graduate in the 1950s have in common? Each has a date with the supernatural. In Lust in Spring, the sixth volume in the Lust series, spring is a time of renewal and desire. Gods, goddesses, incubi, and the fae will seduce and beguile their mortal lovers, but the price for pleasure must be paid. In Byron Kane's The Witch of Olympus Hollow, it's 1952, and Gail Johnson is outraged when her parents send her packing to a tiny town in Appalachia to visit the mysterious great-aunt she has never met. In the foothills of North Carolina, Gail will discover a wondrous birthright as guardian of the land. A lifetime of discipline and sexual satisfaction awaits, but her destiny comes at a cost. In J.D. Carabella's Milady's Command, Juliet has wasted 15 years on a loveless marriage. She's a beautiful sexual woman, and she needs a man who will surrender to her lust. Will her secret fantasy of power and control drive away the man worthy of her attention? Juliet's dream can come true if she's willing to pay the price. In Emma J.'s Incubus Spring, university student Finn has a dilemma, which man to pick. His current boyfriend Charlie is the take-charge type Finn wants. Problem is, Charlie is more interested in managing Finn's budget than his body. Then there's Ezra. It's tough to resist when the sexy owner of an adult toy store offers hands-on demonstrations. Torn between loyalty and lust, the unwitting prey in a seductive game of cat and mouse, Finn's decision will shape his destiny. One goddess, five men. In Ina Morada's The Greenwood Goddess, it's Beltane, and five men have been taken prisoner by Gaia. They've been set a quest, compete for the goddess's favor with the best erotic story. As captivated as the rest, Ben is desperate to win, not least because in this strange and magical place, losing has serious consequences. But if he wins, will the prize be what it seems? And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Lust in Spring. Chapter 1 Dear Diary, April 1st. 1952. Happy birthday to me! Today I turned 21 and only three weeks to graduation! My sorority sisters fooled me again and made a big deal out of my birthday. That's why I'm standing at the moment. The paddles are no fun, even though I should be used to them after four years. I made a wish. Of course I did. Chance is so dreamy. He promised me a very special surprise for our date this weekend. Dear Diary, April 23rd, 
1952. Thank God I got my monthly. Chance is beastly. I never should have believed him. Thankfully, Mother will never find out, or else her hairbrush would be worn out on my hiney. Sabrina says you can't get knocked up French kissing or heavy mouth petting, but I'm glad anyway. I never knew keeping my knees together would be so difficult in the heat of the moment. Dear Diary, May 3rd, 1952 Guess what? Great Aunt Abigail, my namesake, I'm told, although I've never even heard of her, has invited me to her home. I'm very excited. Not. An urgent family matter, insert sarcasm, says my dear mother. Mother says I'm to obey my aunt in all matters. I argued that I'm a college graduate and a grown-up, but she packed my hairbrush away and even said that G.A.A., a.k.a. Great Aunt Abigail, knew I needed an occasional good dose of discipline. I'm so embarrassed. My beloved parents told me I'd be standing on the train ride to Washington if I don't zip it. Daddy only grunted and refused to take my side. He never takes my side. Dear Diary, May 9th, 1952 And so it comes to this. A present for my college degree. The sharp Buick Roadmaster Rivera coupe in Olympic blue is sitting outside in the rain back home, while I, after three separate train rides followed by an ancient bus that trundled up into wild engine country, in far western North Carolina, have finally arrived at the thriving metropolis of Olympus Hollow. Population 243. This is my stop. The driver is calling. You must be Miss Gale. I glanced around in distaste. The bus stop was not a proper station with water fountains and lavatories, but merely a wide spot in the road. Wild chickens and feral dogs kicked up dust, while several old white men in denim overalls and seed caps rocked in chairs on the porch of Jebediah's General Store and spat long streams of brown juice into the dusty gravel parking area. The speaker was a negro, and his mode of transportation was a mule wagon. I was, evidently, on another planet. This was most definitely not Cavalcade of Stars with Jackie Gleason. There was no sophisticated sketch comedy in these characters. I had no congress with the negro in Brian Moore. There were none, although there were plenty to be seen in Philadelphia. Unsure of how to respond, I stuck to politeness. Yes, I'm Gail Johnson. I'm here at the invitation of my great-aunt, Abigail, to spend the month. I was told she would pick me up. I should be your ride, Miss Gale. Miss Abigail, she been a touch under the weather. He hopped down and placed my luggage in the back of the wagon. If and you have a seat, miss, I'll uh, have you up the mountain real quick. You be careful now, boy, you hear? One of the white men called out. 
That be precious cargo you be hauling. Miss Abigail liking to give you boils if an her niece ruffles her pretty dress. Ain't that right, sweet thing? Yes, sir, Miss Bohannon. My driver clucked to his mule and we lurched forward. I could feel my cheeks flame and stared stiffly ahead while the men guffawed and slapped their thighs and whistled. The harsh ammonia smell of sweat and the sharp scent of fresh dung assaulted my pampered nostrils. We were not moving fast enough to ward off the black flies, and soon my hands were in near-constant motion in a futile effort to remain pest-free. Then we turned off the narrow highway onto an even narrower track, and it was as though we entered another land. As far into the distance as I could see were rafts of azaleas, rhododendrons, and flowering trees, and shrubs of every description in a riotous explosion of reds, pinks, and whites. The flies and the offensive odors vanished. A shiver ran through me as if we were dunked in ice water. An electric current sizzled in the air, and my hairs stood up on end. We passed a large quartz granite marker, set off to the right. I heard a loud crack as if thunder had come to the smoky blue sky. Did you hear that? I yelped and clapped my hands over my ears in reflective protection. Is there a storm coming? No, nah, Miss Gale. It be a fine day. I said don't heard nothing but the birds and the bees, if and you please. I looked at him suspiciously, but since all I could hear now was the creak of the wheels and the mule's labored breath, I let it go. I lost myself in the incredible display of vernal color. I'd been annually to the Philadelphia Flower Show for as long as I could remember, but this natural extravaganza was beyond anything I had ever seen. I noticed, too, the gravel drive was smooth, and the grass verge was neatly mowed. Certainly, a motor vehicle would have no problems ascending the slight grade, which begged the question, why the mule and driver? I snuck another peek at the negro on my left. I felt uneasy. My social upbringing and schooling did not address this situation. I took the easy way out and decided to let Great Aunt Abigail perform the introduction to her servant. Dear Diary, May 9th. 1952. The Negro's name is Leroy. GAA explained that he and his family live a mile away and farm the land for produce and raise livestock for meat. They're neighbors, not sharecroppers nor employees. I sensed there was more to the situation, but I at least loosened my tongue enough to speak coherent sentences to Leroy. I felt diminished by my reticence, and got the impression Leroy was not awed with my whiteness, but would tolerate my ignorance unless I proved malicious. It was near lunchtime, and GAA had prepared ham, cornbread, green beans, and either sweet tea or lemonade. After we finished eating, she gave me a quick tour. This isn't what I was expecting, Great Aunt Abigail, I said as I studied the modern Kenmore kitchen under the glow of electric lights. Well, she admitted, 
If you saw some of the folks around here, your preconceptions of dirt floor hovels, outhouses, and candles would not be remiss. I do what I can to support the local crafters, like purchasing furniture and linens and labor. I'd like to do more, but these are proud people, Gail. Black, white, and red, and they don't take kindly to charity. This is Cherokee territory. The Scotch-Irish, who eventually settled here, cling to the old-world traditions and Indian heritage through pure crudeness. According to my great-aunt, the dwelling was cozy, warm in the winter and cool in the summer. The house sat on a small knoll and faced southwest. The outside foundation, to three feet up, was constructed of weathered fieldstone, held together by gravity. The remainder of the exterior, to the eaves, was American chestnut, harvested when the blight swept through the eastern part of the country, in the early part of the twentieth century. The wide porch was laid with long-leaf pine planks that matched the interior floors. At her urging, I took time to wash off the travel grime with hot running water, and then laid down for a short nap. I woke at three in the afternoon. The shadows were growing long. The mountains loomed large to the west. I pulled on a lighter frock with a single petticoat. I didn't hear my great-aunt as I quietly went downstairs. I'd inquired as to her health out of politeness. She said Leroy was a worrywart, and for eighty-four she was sprightly enough. I found a note on the kitchen table, my name on the front in spidery cursive. Gail, I'll be awake for dinner at five. Please make the potatoes au gratin, and fetch some jarred carrots and creamed corn from the cellar pantry. For dessert, bake some chocolate chip cookies. I like ice cream, too, but you've probably never used a churn. Abigail. Any goodwill she'd earned from me vanished in a hiss of fury. I hadn't traveled hundreds of miles back in time to the 19th century to become a drudge. I slammed the note on the counter and fumed. I ran back upstairs, heedless of the noise, and swapped my kitten heels for sturdy flats. The injustice of the situation made me boil over like a pot of rice. Instead of turning down the heat of my temper, I charged out the screen door and off the veranda, as if pursued by a pack of rowdy frat boys. I had no destination in mind, as long as it was away from my great-aunt and her dictatorial mannerisms. In actuality, I was angry with my parents for forcing me here. Combined with the long overnight journey and all the changes, I reacted badly. Even as I ran, I knew I deserved what punishment was coming to me. I glanced back once and thought I saw my great-aunt at a downstairs window. The setting sun washed out her features. Had I been closer, I would have seen, as she explained to me much, much later, a mixture of sadness, hope, and remembrance. My feet beat a rapid tattoo on a brick pathway that appeared out of the lawn. My toes seemed eager to follow the red lane as it dipped and rolled across the swells and under the freshly leafed sycamores and poplars. As I ran, a far-off roaring sound gradually grew louder until it was recognizable as rushing water. Caught up in some mad excitement I couldn't quite grasp, I sprinted, my shoes barely touching the bricks as I flew around the last corner. 
I skidded to a stop, hands on my knees as I blinked and gasped for breath. A waterfall fell several body lengths above me, from a rocky ledge down into a compact crystalline pool. The sand bottom looked close enough to touch. To my right, steam rose in lazy swirls from three smaller basins, each big enough to hold several individuals. A faint luminescence in the surroundings grew stronger. Sunlight faded in the deep forested shadows cast by western mountain peaks, even as the sky above me remained a dome of bright blue. How long I stood there and absorbed the magnificent beauty, I do not now recall. But I sensed something wonderful would happen soon. I dipped my hand into the hot water of the nearest basin, sighing as it crackled and fizzed, the minerals reacting to my skin and clung as a glove when I pulled free of the surface. There was a faint bluish-green haze as the ripples lapped the stone sides. Once again I heard a noise, not thunder this time. It was a belling chime, or maybe the sustained note of a flute. Whatever it was, the tone rang through my bones like the recognition of a long-lost friend. Joyous tears wet my cheeks. I was home in a place I never knew existed. The hairs suddenly stood up on my neck, and the spot between my shoulder blades tingled as if I was under observation. I spun around, my damp hand flew to my chest, my eyes darted about, to fall upon the opposite side of the pool, where it drained out through a deep, dark grotto. I sensed movement. The very air seemed to still. I poised for flight. My heart pounded and my ears roared. A voice sighed. The ash and laurel rustled and spoke to me. Go. Now is not the time. Return tomorrow and be claimed. In a daze, I stumbled away from that place, lost in my thoughts. I walked slowly until the house rose out of an ocean of fresh green growth. I noticed my great-aunt in a rocking chair. I felt compelled to meet her eyes, their expression unreadable. She slowly tapped my hairbrush on her palm. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Lust in Spring. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.